Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Our next guest has written a book on leadership because he is a leader and a long-time CEO, which I found particularly interesting. Joel Trammell has been a long-time CEO, and he talks about CEO and leadership in his book, The CEO Tightrope. Uh, Joel, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Well, as we do with all our guests, tell us a little bit about your background first before we get into uh, some of the things that I wish I had uh, learned many years ago. Well, I uh, grew up in a small town in North Louisiana. My dad was a university professor, and, and I thought that's probably what I wanted to do, and so I got an engineering degree and decided to teach in the Navy at Naval Nuclear Power School to see if I liked teaching. And then a lot of people worked on their master's degrees while they were there. And uh, so I took the job teaching and, and enjoyed teaching very much, but started working on a master's degree in engineering and realized that I just had no interest in engineering anymore. And I had met a couple of what would now be called entrepreneurs. We didn't use that word uh, in those days, but uh, p- people that had started small businesses when I was in high school, and those people really uh, gave me the impetus to look and, and start thinking about the small business route. So at 25, as I was getting out of the Navy, I started my first business, and uh, that's really uh, mostly all I've done since then is run businesses of one form or another. What, what types of businesses? Well, I started out in uh, computer business. Uh, that time, IBM uh, PC clones were a very popular market. Uh, build it, uh, build your own clone was a, a popular way for people to get uh, computers. And uh, started out uh, using Prodigy, uh, the national service before the internet was popular, uh, to attract computer dealers and uh, provide parts and, and resources for computer dealers to build their own business. Since then, I've moved into done a lot of software and hardware, but generally all around the uh, computer and IT space. Well, now uh, let's get to, let's get to your book, um, uh, which again I have to tell you I, I just enjoyed immensely reading. The great thing about uh, the job I have is I get to uh, see a lot of different things. And your book, what? Um, what is the main theme that you, you you emphasize in your book that you learned? 
What I'm trying to uh, get across to folks is that there is a methodology uh, for the CEO job uh, and that I think a lot of people struggle in the CEO job because they haven't received any sort of training and they have to kind of start from scratch and, and figure out that methodology. And I don't say that the CEO job is, is necessarily that much harder than other jobs, uh, but I do think it is different than most people uh, think it is. And therefore, if you haven't had any training, haven't had a, any sort of methodology or background, it's very easy to kind of get swallowed up by the job. And so that's what I'm trying to get across to, to current and, and future CEOs uh, is that there is an approach, and if you understand the approach, you're much more likely to be successful. And CEOs don't get a lot of time to be successful, typically, in a company. Uh, if, if the CEO is not successful, either the company fails or the board or whoever investors decide that they need a different CEO relatively quickly. Uh, and so it's important that CEOs kind of hit the ground running with a, a methodology. Well, what is that methodology that you suggest? So it's very easy in the CEO job to just kind of take the job as it comes. There are always people who want to talk to you. There are always problems to be solved. But I believe you need to think about what kind of the core responsibilities of the job are, focus on those first, um, and then that leaves uh, usually a little bit of time to do do other things. But those those five responsibilities I talk about in the book are owning the vision, uh, providing the proper resources for the business, building the culture, uh, making good decisions, and then finally, and, and kind of the culmination of all those four, before it delivering great performance. Well, let, let's take each of them in, in, in turn. Which do you consider the, uh, the the primary, the first, or the one that uh, a CEO should think about first? You can't have success in, in anything if you don't know where you're going. So to me, every CEO must start with the idea of, of owning the vision. They don't necessarily have to create that vision. Uh, that may have been created before they got to the company. That there may be other people in the company that are more uh, visionary than they are. But the CEO must take ownership, and I like that word ownership uh, to use there because it, it, it really requires the CEO knowing exactly where he's going and being able to communicate that to the rest of the organization in a manner that's appropriate for everybody, each of the stakeholders whether that be employees at the front lines, that be executives, that be shareholders, board members, the public, whatever. So that's the really the starting point for the CEO is owning that, that vision, that strategy, where's the business going, and you, gotta, you have to start from there. And, and, and you're communicating the vision. Now, what's the next step? The next one, uh, I want to go through your list because I, f I found that fascinating, and I hope our audience will as well. Well, thank you for that. Uh, the second step, once, you, once you're very clear on where you're going, uh, then it's up to the CEO to provide the resources that the company needs to be successful, and those resources come in, in different forms. The, the one that uh, is closest to my heart in many ways is the people side of the equation. Um, you, you clearly 
CEOs need to spend a significant amount of their time making sure that the right people are in the organization. I built a business uh, from scratch to about 250 people, and every one of those 250 people I interviewed uh, before we hired them. Uh, matter of fact, in one year I did 252 interviews uh, to hire 100 of those people. And I think uh, many CEOs often leave that function to somebody lower in the organization, let it the recruiting process happen somewhat haphazardly. And so I think that's a very big point that I emphasize, that CEOs need to have uh, often ownership. They don't necessarily have to interview everyone in some companies. That's not practical. Uh, but certainly they have to have ownership of that kind of recruiting process. So that's the first resource. Second resource that, that is typically very important in businesses is capital. Uh, now, hopefully you're going to, most of the capital you're going to use, you're going to generate within the business by selling something, some product or service. Uh, but a lot of times, uh, those of us who have done startup businesses know uh, initial capital is, is critical as well. And so the CEO is the one person in the company that, that needs to go out and make sure that happens. And then there are other resources the CEO can bring to the company outside just capital and people. A third thing is, is expertise. So the CEO is, has an interesting role kind of between the, driving the company and the outside world. Most people in a business are very focused internally on what's going on in the business. CEO needs to be a bridge between external expertise that can be brought in to help the company at various times and the internal uh, focus of the company. And so I, it's important for CEOs to get out in the industry, uh, meet people, bring in that external expertise as a resource uh, that's valuable to the company. You're on a roll. Go to the next one. <laughs> so after you uh, get the right resources in place and you have a clear direction of where you're going, uh, then it's very much about building the culture. And, and culture to me is often overcomplicated. Uh, uh, culture is just merely the way things get done based on what gets valued and rewarded in an organization. And there is a culture in every organization, uh, whether it's intentionally built or whether it just occurs. And sometimes in the worst of organizations, there become multiple multiple cultures uh, which are in constant collision with each other and, and prevent positive things from happening. Uh, but to build a culture, you, you have to really understand people. You have to understand uh, what makes them tick. Uh, I use a model from a gentleman by the name of David Rock called the SCARF model. He talks about there are five things that, that affect people uh, that people react to, and, and those are status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And his argument is we are not that far from the animals that you know roam the Saharan African plains, uh, at least mentally, and therefore any time someone challenges our status, uh, any time we're uncertain about the future, any time we don't have autonomy, uh, anytime we can't find relatedness in our work and anytime we think people have been unfair, we have a very emotional reaction. And even though we like to think of ourselves as logical people, uh, emotions often carry the day. And so when you're building a culture, you have to think about all the things you do in a business that might affect somebody um, in this model. So, for instance, 
I was a big fan of having private offices uh, for every employee wherever possible uh, because this promoted them uh, their status. Uh, nobody brings their parents in to look at their six by six cube, right? Uh, and so that gave people status, and as well as autonomy, they had some control over over their area of work. And there are many things like that that people people don't think about from a policy perspective, how they set up pay, all kinds of things that can cause people to have one of these emotional reactions and, and build a very harmful harmful culture. And then the, the next one? So then it, once you do all those things, uh, you're going to get hit as CEO with a lot of decisions. And, and making decisions, I always talk about decisions are the fuel on which the company runs. Uh, if you don't make enough decisions and you don't make decisions quickly enough, the engine of the company will sputter. People will be very... Uh, uh, slowed in their efforts waiting for the CEO to make a decision. And all of us have been in situations where, where the company kind of ground to a halt while everyone was wait, waiting on a decision. So it's very important that a CEO build up a methodology for making decisions, that he takes decisions on, that he understands which decisions should be the CEO's decisions. Not every decision should go to the CEO. Uh, you know, some CEOs want to approve the font on the business card and the color of the walls. Uh, and that's always bad as well. And so understanding kind of what decisions the CEO needs to make, how he should make them, who are the uh, parties that he needs to involve in his thinking. One of the things I have always uh, pushed is what I call a decision triangle, and I try to teach this to every employee that works for me, that anytime we're making a decision as a company, we need to balance the various stakeholders, and typically those are the employees as a whole, the customers as a whole, and the shareholders as a group. Uh, and it's very easy for companies to get focused on one of those areas and not balance the needs of each of those companies. And I always tell people the right decision effectively balances the needs of those three constituents. And you see with companies, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of public companies get very focused on shareholders and and short-term quarterly results because of that, because they're concerned about shareholders on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, and they're not balancing what's good for employees and customers. A lot of startups, on the other hand, because they only have employees and don't have a lot of customers, and shareholders maybe uh, have, already, have given them money and are waiting, you know, are patiently waiting for a return, they focus just on employees. And so there's kind of a natural progression that companies go through. First, they focus on employees. Then they tend to focus on customers as they get their first few customers. And as they get bigger, they focus on shareholders. And what I talk about from a decision perspective is it's very important that you keep all three of those in mind uh, at the same time when you're making decisions. And if you can train your employees to think in that manner, a lot of the bad decisions that, that otherwise would be made uh, can be eliminated. Well, um uh, I think that's all of them, isn't it, or is there one more? Uh, and then, then the last one kind of sums them all up, and that's deliver performance. Uh, you know, if you're a CEO, you're going to get measured by how well the company does, hopefully over a longer period of time than one quarter or two quarters, uh, but you are ultimately responsible for, for delivering performance. And um, oftentimes uh, things happen that are not your fault, uh, but you're still responsible for that. So it's 
it's very important that CEOs understand they're going to be held responsible for the performance, good, bad, or indifferent, and figure out the right systems to put in place to help deliver that performance. Well, that's terrific. It's a great, uh, you almost want to paste them on your forehead if you're a small business. <laughs> um, let me go back. Um, you, you mentioned one um, about giving employees uh, their own uh, uh, office. That goes contrary to the, the trends. We've had a couple of people on this program, and uh, there was a New York Times article recently and several others talking about open space and, in fact, not get, giving them space. How do you feel about that? Yeah, and, uh, uh, many companies like uh, Verizon, uh, in many cases, uh, you don't have a permanent desk. You just have a, uh, a locker, and then you find an open desk when you come in. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think in general that is is very short-sighted. Um, it treats employees as numbers and not people. Uh, all of us want a place to, to put our stuff. Uh, all of us want a, a place to consider our own. Uh, it depends on exactly the type of work. There are certainly some jobs uh, as a startup uh, CEO, certainly in the early stage of companies when you're initially building a product, there's often a, a good reason to have uh, a lot of the key developers sitting together in, a, in an open area uh, as, as they work on a particular project. Uh, but in general, for knowledge workers, uh, having their own office will, in my opinion, uh, improve productivity of the organization, it will improve the culture of the organization, make people feel more comfortable. Uh, and it'll be much easier in this uh, very competitive job market to retain people uh, if you give them the proper work environment instead of making them feel like hobos that have to find a spot each day. Let me ask you uh, another question. Um, you say you interview people. What do you look for in, in, a, in an individual? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question and, and something that I think most CEOs don't spend enough time thinking about. Uh, often hiring is a very reactive process. Someone quits uh, and, oh, we rush and we try to find a resume and we try to find certain qualifications that check some boxes and then we hire the first person that seems moderately competent. Uh, and so... I think it's very important to figure out what you need in a job. And, and the general guideline that I think people don't think about enough is you, you have to figure out what, what you're, you need from the employee. And I break it into two categories. In some cases, you need an employee just to do more of something that you already know how to do as an organization. Uh, so you are scaling the organization. Um, and you don't really need that employee to invent anything or to bring any particular expertise to the job. And in that case, I'm always a big fan of not looking for experience, trying to find the smartest, most talented person you can, and that may be somebody you know that has almost no experience, and bring them in and train them for that job. Because the challenge you run into when you already know how you want something done and you hire somebody with experience is they want to use that experience. Uh, and their experience is typically going to be different than and not align perfectly with your experience. Uh, now, if you have a job uh, 
where you don't know exactly how it's going to be done, you're creating a new group, you're doing something the company does not have expertise in, then a lot of times that's where you do want to look and find somebody with experience because you're basically going to say to them, hey, go build out this particular area or function. And then experience is very important. But I think people often try to hire experience thinking they're going to get somebody who doesn't require any training in the job. And my belief is is everybody requires training in a new job. They're in a new culture. They're in a new organization. They, they must be trained. And so trying to hire somebody with experience to do a job that you know exactly how you want them to do is often a recipe for failure. Joel, how did you come up with the name, the CEO type role? So I worked with my editor, Larry Bishop, and I had gathered a lot of the material for the book uh, in teaching a course. So I annually teach a course uh, to uh, technology CEOs. And uh, in teaching that course, I developed a lot of material, uh, but I didn't have kind of an organizing theme. And when I went over all the material with my editor, uh, what she said was, you really seem like the theme here is balance. And as soon as she said that, I went, absolutely. Uh, it's not one way or the other in the CEO job. You have to walk uh, a balancing act. And so that led kind of naturally to the tightrope analogy and using that as a title. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's a good analogy. Well, um, the, the, there was a, uh, another part of, of your uh, book that, uh, I found it interesting um, as well. Um, the CEO has to, in fact, deal with uh, three audiences, the shareholders or the investors, uh, um, the, uh, the staff, and the, obviously the outside world. Um, how do you balance, uh, how do you d develop a methodology to balance those things? Yeah, I think that is a, a very critical thing that, that CEOs can easily uh, lose sight of. Um, so I'm on boards of companies from uh, a public company uh, to very small private companies that are just starting out. Uh, and I think there's really an evolution uh, that happens in companies that uh, the CEO has to, has to manage. Um, and the CEO has to kind of drag the company back to the center of balancing the employees, shareholders, and customers. Um, when, the, when the you know company starts out, everybody focuses on the employees. It's all about getting the best employees. It's all about taking care of them, and 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 you see cultures uh, you know start like that. Uh, but then you start getting customers, and then people realize, oh, we, you know, we really have customers, and, and they're the ones that are paying the bills, so they're important. And then over time, customers become more ordinary. Uh, as you get more and more of them and, and more expected. And, and often as you go into a public situation or you're getting to a point where shareholders are expecting their return, uh, you get very focused kind of on the financial results of the company. And I see this particularly in a lot of public companies where it seems to me from their actions all they are focused on is you know the short-term quarterly kind of financial results. And so the job of the CEO is to, is to force people in the organization to put on uh, the hats uh, and, and wear all three of those hats when they're looking at a decision. Uh, obviously, at any point in time, from a short-term financial perspective, there are probably ways to save money. But is that, is that what is best long-term for employees, long-term for customers? 
uh, is the way that, that you have to train not only the CEO but, but, but your staff uh, to think about the problems because there are going to be a lot of cases where you're not there to solve the problem. Uh, I tell a story in the book of, of going to Las Vegas uh, to check into a hotel, and we had reserved almost the entire hotel for a function for my company, and I just kind of at the last minute decided to go out a day early uh, with the advance team and uh, meet with a few customers. And so when I got to the hotel, I didn't have a reservation for that particular night. And so I, checked, I waited for the other folks uh, on my advance team who, who did have reservations to check in, and then I asked the attendant at the front desk, uh, do you have rooms for this evening, or do you have any openings? Because I, you know, I knew there was a chance they, they wouldn't have any openings. And she was, absolutely, we have openings. And I said, okay, well, I'm with the, the, the group here that, that we have the rest of the hotel bought out for the rest of the week, and so I'd like a room. And she said, fine, no problem, sir. And she said, the, the rate will be $199 a night. And I said, well, you know, we negotiated a, a $99 a night rate. Uh, but she was adamant that they were going to charge us $199. And uh, it struck me that the problem uh, that she had was that she had been given some direction from somebody higher in the organization that it was very important to get rack rate when rack rate was available, but she had never been taught the concept of, of balancing the needs between the shareholders, the employees, and customers. Obviously, when the manager heard that they were trying to charge me you know, double the rate and we had hundreds of rooms booked and I was the key decision maker that had made that decision, uh, he called me up immediately and apologized profusely and, and offered me even a, even a better rate. But, but those kind of things happen in companies all the time where, where employees get focused on a particular rule or a particular um, segment of the, of the uh, stakeholders. And so you have to teach employees to balance all three uh, if you want a company that functions well. What a great uh, illustration. It, it, exactly the same thing was uh, happened to me just uh, a few days ago, where an employee was adamant. Uh, I was a very good customer of this particular group, and uh, they wouldn't—they uh, uh, wouldn't, in effect, give me my, my own uh, health insurance, uh, health uh, record, because um, I needed it. Uh, it was, happened to be an optometrist, and uh, 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 I was being given a new experimental. Uh, a set of eyeglass uh, sunglasses, um, but they needed the focal length, and she wouldn't give me the record because she said uh, she could not give it to me, uh, and uh, uh, they they almost lost a very good customer. Uh, but the interesting thing was, I asked for their uh, manager to call me, and that manager has never called me. Yeah, it, it is very easy for businesses to get what I call rules-based um, and become rules-based over time and never explain to the employees why the rule was made in the first place. Uh, and you absolutely need processes and you need rules in place, but at the end of the day, employees need to understand why uh, those particular rules are in place uh, and be able to adjust when the situation calls for it. Well, you teach C CEOs. What, are, what do you find are the um, 
uh, main things that these CEOs do that uh, uh, you find that uh, they they should should do but aren't doing in your courses? Yeah, so there are several things that are kind of typical. Um, I work with a lot of, of fairly early stage companies, so that are you know 20 to, to 50 employees, and, and there's a real transition that happens in an early stage company. Um, you know, the first when you just have you know zero to 20 employees, and you're first building the business, um, the, the CEO can be very hands on and can be almost one of the uh, he's, he's almost a project leader. Uh, and so I talk about the real CEO job starting when there are kind of more than 25 employees and the CEO can no longer manage everything directly and keep track of everything in their head and what's going on. And, and so the transition that CEOs have to make at that point is they have to begin to trust their employees uh, and build systems in place to direct their employees independent of them walking around and being in direct contact. And, and that's the challenge. A lot of CEOs have trouble giving up control uh, as the company grows beyond their ability to directly manage it. Uh, they still want to be involved in every decision. Uh, they still want to be uh, in charge of, of, of making every decision. And, and you just can't be as a company grows if you want it to achieve its, its full success. Um, and so kind of teaching CEOs, how to set up a system that allows them to still absolutely be in charge, absolutely uh, effectively manage the organization. I don't, I don't want CEOs to go on vacation. There's an important role for them to do, but to not micromanage the organization and allow the people uh, to take on bigger, broader, better roles that will make uh, both the, not only the employees happier, but the shareholders and customers happier long term. Joel, this has been a fascinating interview, and um, I I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience did. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to uh, impart? Yeah, I think the the one thing I talk about is no one's ever really qualified for the CEO job uh, because the CEO job requires knowing the people uh, intimately in the organization, the the market intimately, um, and so... It's all about learning. Uh, the faster the CEO can learn, the better they are. And so, you know, hopefully my book is a small contribution to that learning effort and a discussion about what are the best practices around the CEO function. Well, thank you again. The name of your book? The CEO Tightrope. Can people get it on Amazon and uh, other It'll places? It will be available... Uh, start shipping on Amazon September 9th. Okay. Well, um, uh, after that, I would like you to come back again and, and talk about uh, uh, more because I, I know our audience, uh, uh, I know I would lo- love to hear more from you. I'd be delighted. Thank you again for coming, and we'll, uh, good luck on your book. Thanks very much. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2 
2HSA.com. That's 2HSA.com. Our next guest is Yosef Martin, self-made millionaire, who I hope will share some of his expert business advice so we can all make some more money. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We always ask uh, first uh, of our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, personally, before we get into anything else. Well, um, I came to the United States in 2001. Um, and from where? To, uh, I came from Israel. I uh, finished the military in Israel, and I basically came to uh, study. I went uh, to business school at the FIU, Florida International University. And during that time, I decided to open a business, and um, the business was a liquidation company, merchandise liquidators. And since then, I continue running this uh, operation. I have since then multiple businesses, but um, that was my first startup. And the original objective was actually to continue to law school, but, you know, there are other things right, to run into, and obviously uh, that plan was changed. Well, uh, that's interesting. But let's go and talk. You're young. You start off a new business. Do you remember some of the mistakes you made for, um, as as somewhat of a tyro in in this uh, area? Well, and, that's and what I, mean. I, I was doing. I was doing too many mistakes. I mean, not too many. I did many mistakes. Um, and I have to say that this is not the first attempt that I had to open a business. It was just uh, the first successful one. Um, <laughs> the, the, the point is that when you come to, to, to the country, the land of opportunities, and you get to see other people coming from your country making it, and you ask yourself, well, they made it, I'll, I'll do the same. But you kind of forget that those who didn't, they can go back to Israel and live comfortable with a convenient job, but the ones who stayed are the ones that were able to make it. And it just gives you a drive, so you're not afraid of failing. And after a couple of attempts that didn't really work, um, the company, Merchandise Liquidators, actually hit it off very well. But the mistakes I made was, in the, in the beginning, losing focus at first when I saw something was working well. I was trying to do other things at the same time, and I was trying to grab too many opportunities at the same time. Instead of growing one opportunity and get it to a particular, to a particular point where it can run by itself where the business is more independent and doesn't need my my full attention uh, and later on you can venture to other other businesses but uh, that would be definitely one of my main mistakes in the beginning in the first three years okay so you learn from that oh what yeah. is the th- uh, our audience uh, almost uh, Fifty-nine percent of our audience are owners and/or presidents. Mm-hmm. In talking to them, if, if I asked you what were the the three th- keys to your success, what would it be? First of all, the main one uh, was not being afraid of failing, um, willing to fail. That's the main the main point. Otherwise, I wouldn't go into a business. I would look for a day job. If you pass that stage and you already open the business, uh, the second one is being organized. I think it's very important. And the third one is, for my, on my end, I would say willing to learn from others. 
uh, you don't know everything. It's always important to go and associate with other people, and that would just make you that much better. Everyone has something else to bring to the table, even if it's a friend that never really get to the same place you were, but there's always something you can learn. But if you associate yourself with the right people, you'll just do better. Well, you came on and you had your own ideas of what you want to talk about. So I've asked two of my uh, kind of stock questions, which usually get a good answer. Um, what is it that you, you want to say to our audience? Main, the main thing for me, and I'm trying to reach a lot of entrepreneurs uh, or people that want to be entrepreneurs, um, is that if I made it, anyone else can. And the reason is it's not because I I think that I have any disadvantage over people. Aside of the fact that I was just not a guy that you would think that always run and, and try to open businesses. I was really not a guy. I was the guy that was actually looking for a job. I was all my life looking for jobs, getting jobs, and I was only opening a job because I was not allowed to be hired. I wasn't. I didn't have papers, but I was allowed to open a business. That's that's what I like about the United States. So if a guy like me that didn't have um, his parents as, as entrepreneurs, he came from a place where everybody used to get a day job, and I was going in the same house, was able to make it. It just shows that anyone can do it. It's just not everyone is willing to try. And I think that um, listening, for example, to uh, to certain people making statements like. There's a particular statement that was made by President Barack Obama saying, you think you built it, you didn't build it, there is other people who made it, which his point was saying, you opened a business, you're not better than anyone else, you're not smarter than anybody else, there's a lot of other people. But the main point that Obama forgot was we made it because we tried. That's the bottom line. There's 90% of the people that haven't tried, that's why they never made it. If those 90 90% would try, there would be more business people. And if you're afraid, the only problem is you. You need to try. Failing is not a big deal if you know what you're doing. It's okay. You can afford to lose, especially if you're young, if you don't have dependence. If you can go and waste some time, do it. So you're not going to sleep for a couple nights. For, for the first six months, you're going to go and stay awake every night until you're going to make it happen, even if you have a day job right now. You can do it on the, on your free time. So you're not going to go out. I didn't have a chance to go out. I didn't have a chance to socialize for a while in the beginning. I ended up meeting my wife online on eHarmony because I wasn't going out. And so on my free time online, I would go out. I would basically meet. Uh, I met her online because I didn't have the time. But just put the time. There is no excuses. If you give excuses, the only one paying is you. Well, that's pretty good advice. I won't argue with you there. I often say that when uh, you open a business, uh, it's like jumping off a, a cliff and you hope somebody's building a sw swimming pool before you uh, <laughs> land. But mm -hmm. uh, how are you reaching out to people to try to get your message across? Well, basically, um, it, it comes down to it that um, some people – read a couple articles of mine and they called me. Um, I am very open on uh, on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. Uh, quite a few people contact me and they ask me if they can sit down and I can help them. Most of them are already in a stage where they open the business and they're trying to figure out how to promote the business. And because I'm 
I'm pretty experienced with search engine optimization and social media. I love to sit down with people and uh, guide them, give them some guidance. Um, there are some other groups that I met before with uh, some incubators and um, and so that like to get some inspirational, uh, ins to be inspired. So I like I like to meet with people like that. I think that it gives me a lot of satisfaction to see someone doing something good. There are certain programs that um, I'm getting involved now that are by the Endeavor um, organization, and I'm excited about it. So I, I am active looking to help people growing their business. I think it's great. I think um, every business is more of a, of a golden goose for the economy and creating more jobs and anywhere. It's just it's it's fun to be among ambitious people. I don't care how successful they are currently. I just like to be among ambitious people. Well, how do people reach you? Mostly uh, through articles, but um, no, no, I have no. my LinkedIn. Uh, you, anyone can contact me through LinkedIn. What's your LinkedIn account? Um, you can go to Joe Martin, and you can find me over there. Um, is this a radio audience? Can you spell it out for them? Um, go, go on um, Joseph Martin. I think the best way to go is just Google my name, Joseph Martin, and you'll be able to go through one of the articles to my uh, LinkedIn account. It's Y-O-S-E-F Martin, M-E-R-T-I-N, and you'll probably find either my LinkedIn account, and if not, you can find me through Facebook and contact me and say you contact me through the radio show, and I'll be very happy to add you as my friend and be in touch with you. Well, that, we'll get back to that, but I'd like to keep you on a little longer and talk a little bit more. Um, what are the other, um, in helping people, what, what are some of the questions that come up um, that seem to recur that you could perhaps share with us? Well, mostly, uh, I would say 90% of the people uh, would come to something related to the wholesale and try and see if they can buy certain goods that they have. And after hearing about my business, uh, the liquidation business, and that would be 90% of the people. They would basically ask, what do you have? And then I invite them over. They can come and see the merchandise. I am not uh, an active salesperson. I have my sales stuff, but... I always give them my phone number if they need something, and we try to take it from there. The second ones are mostly it comes down to um, social media, where I, I, I tend to help them because their social business is a bit different, and they ask uh, for help how to reach clientele. And I'm pretty, um, I'm, I'm very, um, I would say, excited to find a new opportunity like this to try and help them reach clients to their particular segment. So those are the main two questions. How to get a client or what do you have, what, what I can buy and sell and make money. That's 90% of the question. Hmm. Well, okay. Uh, but outside of that, um, what do you think are the three main reasons people don't open a small business? Convenience. It sounds like they believe that it's easier to open a job, to find a job, versus uh, opening a business. Which I can, I can understand that. I, I respect that. It's obviously uh, a risk. You have to either invest money or come up with a very um, nice idea or concept. And yeah, a lot of businesses, it takes about a year until it, they are actually breaking even. So I, I can see that. However, if you're gonna check, I'm sure you're gonna find that. Many of the business owners 
open business because they either run, it, they had it in the family already, so it doesn't seem too scary, or because they had no choice. Someone like me, they, they had to do it. Um, only few of them are so ambitious and they're so um, emotional about their ideas, so they, and they go trying to pursue this idea, which can be good or bad, depends how they do it, but but that would be, I believe, a smaller part or a smaller section of people trying to open a business. And I think that if someone is going to go responsibly without you putting a mortgage and a second mortgage on your house just to follow an idea, but you basically do it the right way. You go and you try to write down a business plan. If you do not have the capital and you do need the capital, you try to raise the seed money. There, is a ste- there are steps that would eliminate the risk. Uh, of you not committing a financial suicide. And if you do not get that money, then keep staying at your day job until you find some other alternatives. It's not a must. Not everyone has to open a business. But I think because people are more comfortable of getting a job and getting paid right now, paying their bills, less of them would go and look for that opportunity of opening their own business. Well, you know, it's an interesting point. I don't know if you're aware, but um, there are more small businesses um, available now than at any time in the last uh, 15 years uh, because there's a whole generation of owners that want to uh, um, uh, retire and their children don't want to be part of the business. Do uh, mm. um, you want to comment on that, that at all? I think that if those are the ones that opened their own business because their parents either worked for a corporation before or had their own business and expect their kids to work in it, uh, that might uh, that might change that might change because I I can believe that if you see your dad working in a in a corporation and those corporations kind of fall off and disappear, there is no there is no more opportunities uh, because. Assuming you have a factory in uh, in North Carolina and that factory closed off because the labor went to China, people have no other choice but opening their own business. And if in that particular town, everyone back in the day used to work in the same factory, no one graduated uh, from high school because when they were 16, they could get a decent job staying in the union and working for that factory, but this factory is no longer, and that was 90% of the jobs in that town, then what else are they going to do other than finding another solution? Well, that's true. And uh, um, on the other side of the coin, there were more uh, small businesses opened last year than uh, at any time in the, in the last uh, uh, 12 years. I don't know if you're aware of that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be surprised. I'll tell you what, I'm not surprised. Look at, um, look at Argentina when, in the 90s when they had the, uh, the financial crisis. They had more businesses growing in Buenos Aires than any other time. They grew large businesses at the worst time, at its worst economy, because there was no job to find, and people were basically, the, the money was there. People are there to go and create opportunities. There are new opportunities, but people had to go and just dig harder to find something else to do, and they created the new jobs. There was the next cycle. The, the market is dynamic. Things have to evolve, and, um, and that just certain, certain ideas are not true today than what what it used to be true. I mean, you go and you take a business class and you'll take accounting. 90% of what I learned in accounting was not even relevant. It was talking about factories as if 
were in the 70s or in the 60s. There are basically no more factories, unfortunately, in the United States, but there's other things. There's other things involved. So when I was learning about efficiency of, of products, how to go and do it in a factory, that was already not important. I was already focusing on social media, on Internet marketing, back in the day when my professors didn't know anything about it. So I'm not surprised that the new generation goes on a different path. Well, that, that's a very interesting comment. Um, you know, you, you've been uh, now in business a while. Uh, have you seen, uh, and you obviously um, survived the, the recession, uh, how do you see the future? I think it's a matter of balance of trade. Um, unfortunately, the United States suffers uh, when it comes down to balance of trade. Uh, it's just a matter of time until uh, we're going to see the, the effect. Um, we do need to remember that industry is important, and we kind of like don't want to face the, the, the reality. And fortunately, I believe that the the value of the currency is going to uh, of the dollar currencies is going to diminish mostly once it's going to be no longer the international currency see today if i want to go and uh, if if you look uh, if let's say england wants to buy goods from brazil they'll have to convert in dollars so there's a lot of demand for dollar because of that once the dollar is no longer the world currency there's not going to be demand from england to buy American dollars in order to pay Brazil. They, say, might use the yen, the, the Chinese currency. And that's when the U.S. dollar is going to crash. And I, this is my only worry. So I am comfortable in investing in particular real estate uh, or different ideas that would stay safe during that recession because I do not see currently how the U.S., can survive it. Now, there are some points that might help us that not too many people are aware of. Um, what might help us and keep us on the map as the world uh, superpower, financial superpower, is currently the, the gas where we were able to uh, take petroleum and use it from phosphates. That's, that's basically the, the new thing, and it's cost-effective. Back in the day, it wasn't. And apparently today, within the next, in the last year, the United States apparently is the largest oil uh, provider. And hopefully we're not going to have to be dependent on sending so much money outside, and that might help the balance of trade. So this is my take into it. Everyone has to think for themselves about it. But um, I think the, the only way for us uh, to look at what happened to businesses is if a business, I think what the United States needs to do is if a business is basically uh, exporting goods more than what it's importing. And it's uh, to get some type of incentive from the government to help those types of businesses that helps in balance of trade. Unfortunately, I don't see it yet. So hopefully it's going to change. Well, um, I had a great question for you. Oh, um, do you feel at this time... Um, Oh, I, I know what the question was. Um, the, the 90s were fueled by the technology developed by America. Do you see, uh, are any of your uh, enterprises in technology, or are they? Uh, yes, I, I have. Yes, I do. I have a side of the. Um, well, basically, I get 
known for the merchant for merchandise liquidators uh, for the website for the liquidation wholesale and I grew because I did search engine optimization and and social media however I have other businesses I uh, I am invested in uh, in a startup that's uh, absolutely and only on a, on a web on a mobile app and I have another business that is a monthly subscription program however it's it's also mostly viral, and yes, I do have technology businesses. Hmm. Do you think that uh, it's possible we could fuel another um, a boom by some new technology? Well, what I foresee right now is this. Um, I think that if we're looking into technology since um, mobile app is the new technology currently, um, and we do not see currently any other devices aside of apps. This is the new thing. Now, if you're going to pay close attention, the problem we have is not necessarily with the apps or with, with the new technology with, that we have already. The change is probably going to be with currency, with um, with the cor- with online currency, with viral currency that might affect other parts uh, in our. Um, in our traditional uh, spending. Other than that, I would say that any kind of change that's going to come, it's going to come only from us, but I don't see any major change in the next five to ten years because it was already done. I mean, the the app was the new thing. If someone already created an app um, that was that was a new app, uh, like uh, if they're the first movers, we're not going to see too many differences. I mean, we might see new innovations in ideas for us, but nothing as a new technology per se. We had the internet and then we had the mobile app. That's how that's how I that's how I see it. And I'm I don't see anything else in the next five to ten years. As aside of hardware, we might find new hardware, uh, but that's something that we'll have to see once it comes up. Currently I don't see anything in the next five to ten years. Okay. Uh, again, your personal personal website and your company website for our audience. Merchandise with a Z, liquidators.com. This is um, this is my liquidation business. We're we're basically liquidating um, anything that you see in any drug store, any major store. I buy all their overruns by the end of the season, and just to understand, it's not like I buy it once uh, a year. I buy it once a day in truckloads from the biggest. Uh, retailers in the country from the federated stores to any kind of store you can imagine. Uh, we bring them down to our facility and we redistribute everything into the secondary market where we sell some parts of designer handbags, designer shoes, uh, shampoos, cosmetics, clothing, anything you can imagine. All comes down to our warehouse in North, in North Carolina and two of them in uh, South Florida. Mm. Well, um, thank you. It's been a really interesting uh, time with you, and I hope you'll come back again later on uh, and and talk some more. No problem. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. No, thank you, and have a good day. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Just how dangerous is social networking? Use of websites like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are all the rage. But what are the downsides of this new technology? The incidence of bullying, Stalking, harassment, and inappropriate content are increasing. Just how dangerous is it? What can you do to protect your child and yourself from it? 
Go to protectivecountermeasures.com for a free hour-long video on the dangers of social networking. That's protectivecountermeasures.com for your free hour-long video. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.